Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And, well, speaking of what we're reviewing, Simon Stewart and I sat down for this week's episode of Bikes and Big Ideas to talk about a whole bunch of it, because we've been spending time on a lot of bikes from the Yeti SB160 and Kodak Rocket Max that I talk about to the Pivot Shuttle LT and specialized Levo that Simon's been spending much time on and comparing. And we also get into it about the new SRAM transmission, some wheels and apparel. And we also tease a couple of new things that are in the pipeline that we will be able to talk about publicly a whole lot more soon because there are a lot of new bikes and a lot of new things coming out in the bike world in the next little bit here with Sea Otter just around the corner. And so there's going to be a lot of new exciting stuff showing up on the website very soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But before we dive into the episode, I do want to take just a minute to encourage you to check out our Blister membership, which, among other things, gets you a lot of very good deals on a bunch of great gear, including wheels from We Are One, a lot of apparel and parts and a whole bunch of ski gear as well, and also lets you send me an email and talk about whatever your next bike purchase or upgrade might be. Been cranking through a whole lot of Blister member questions about new bikes for folks in the coming season because there are very much bikes available now and even some stuff on sale and so people are getting out on new bikes we're setting them up with them so check out the blister membership via the link in the show notes and get some help with that and with that let's get right to my conversation with simon stewart well simon great to sit down and chat as always talk about bikes and just give some little updates on some of the stuff we've been testing of late. So, how are you doing? Oh, it's it's, it's great to be chatting with you again. Um, I know this may not be the case for you, and sorry to rub it in, but spring has sprung here. Trails are running really nice. It's sunny and warm. So, uh, the bike bug is definitely out there at the moment. So, how about yourself? It was spring here two weeks ago and has then since ceased to be. So, I'm back to riding in the rain a whole lot, but... Uh, Still getting out there and looking forward to some warmer, drier weather, hopefully coming pretty soon here. Well, you know, it's a, it's okay for you to be the rainy one because someone has to test, you know, bikes in the rain and have rain and have uh, rain gear on your, on your list of things to test. So that's you, my friend. It is been, been doing plenty of that, but yeah, to bring it into some of the stuff we've been testing, kind of probably the most high-profile biggest thing right now is the new SRAM transmission, which I've been spending a lot of time on on a couple of different bikes now. And um, we'll be sending a mystery one of those that we can't talk about just yet publicly your way pretty shortly here. So we'll be getting you some time on it as well. But I mean, I guess for people who haven't seen it, have been living under some sort of a rock and have somehow missed this one, SRAM launched a line of new... Well, they're calling it a transmission rather than a drivetrain. It's their updated whole ecosystem with a direct mount derailleur and a whole bunch of wild stuff going on along with it. You should go check out our first look at the whole deal to get the more complete rundown. But um, And the podcast I did with Chris Mandel from SRAM talking about it as well. We got a lot of coverage up there already. But uh, anyway, my impressions thus far are basically that it works extremely well shifting performance has been great 
the, in many ways, kind of just the simplicity and ease of installation and setup and at least theoretical promise of little to no adjustment required over its lifetime and that kind of stuff is in many ways sort of the most compelling thing of the whole package and uh we'll need to lot a bunch more miles on it and beat it up some more to see how fully that is or is not borne out in practice but at least thus far it has been just hasn't skipped a beat on anything i've done the one exception being uh that i did crash on it and sort of slide the bike along through some mud basically on the derailleur side of things and packed it very full of dirt in doing so which wasn't too big a deal but uh somehow in the process of doing that i managed to have the upper cage bolt the one that holding holds the guide pulley in place come loose which didn't exactly do great things for the shifting performance with the guide pulley floating back and forth a couple millimeters um so that was I had this sort of moment of panic of like, oh, oh damn, did I actually manage to bend the derailleur? Have I messed this up? And then pretty quickly realized that no, I hadn't done any real damage. I just needed to tighten the pulley bolt and all was well. So so far it's been great. Shifting performance is extremely good, including under load. I definitely like the ergonomics of the new pod controller better than the old Axis rocker paddles deal. Um Certainly some personal preference at play there, but it's easier to position it where I want it to. And I like that there's kind of a bit more of a positive click to the buttons and you just have a little more feedback that you've actually pushed it. And it's just easier to tell what's going on than with the sort of softer, more subtle rocker paddles. So that's all been neat. You know, since you're chatting about that, that is, that is, if I'm not mistaken, the the one component that is backwards compatible with um, the, I will call it now, the the old Axis um, electromechanical uh, system. Yeah, that's right. You can use the new pod controller with the old Axis derailleur and seat post or vice versa. If you happen to prefer the old one running sort of counter to my preferences, you can use the old one on a T-type derailleur as well. So those go back and forth, but that's a about it most of the parts as you said are dedicated to their respective generations of system and uh there's not a whole lot of cross compatibility going on there and so i guess sort of for me the kind of bottom line at this point again you know needing some more time to assess the long-term durability portion of the program especially my take is sort of that works super well has been the one very minor hiccup previously mentioned decide more or less flawless in this performance and it works great i'm not ready to say that it has rendered prior generations of drivetrain from either sram or shimano obsolete or made me unhappy to ride them or anything like that it's not like it is such a mind-blowing step forward in the in the space that i just am transmission only for now and can't live with anything else or whatever works awesome definitely has some real improvements and refinements over what preceded it but isn't necessarily totally revolutionizing my experience on a bike or anything like that which you know that's obviously an exceedingly high bar to be holding anything to well take um for example one of the things you disliked about um previous eagle um drivetrains was the big jump between the 42 and the 52 so they've of course remedied that in the new transmission and um what's your take on that yeah that's an improvement if anything, I think they could have gone a little 
further with it still. The jump's now a 44.52 rather than 42.52 like it used to be. So it's definitely better, but it still doesn't feel quite as smooth and even as the steps on Shimano's 51 tooth cassettes, which go 45.51. So it's a bit smaller jump at the top end still. Yeah, I'd say SRAM took a step in the right direction, but maybe could have even gone a little farther with it. Fair. You know, I, I think you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but one of the things that um, I'm very excited about is the replaceable uh, components of this rear derailleur that weren't previously replaceable on um, previous Axis models or any other of their derailleurs for that matter. And especially in that pivot area that we sort of we go into this in our Axis durability study, where that's a very susceptible area and potentially with the strength of this new full mount system, uh, those pivots are even more susceptible because it's so strong and we don't have a hanger that's going to bend a little bit out of the way. So I think it's on you to see um, if you can damage that area and then we can replace it. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I mean, I, I took my first stab at it with the aforementioned crash where I dragged it through a bunch of dirt, but uh, right. and so far so good. I haven't hit one on a rock or anything like that super hard yet, but uh, I'll take care of that. Yeah, right. We're sending it to the right place for that for you. So uh, yeah, a derailleur hostile environment. Watch out uh, transmission. A <laughs> little bit rockier part of the world than where I'm at. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kick that one to you very shortly here and see how it goes. Cool. Yeah. And then I guess to move things along to some complete bikes that we've been spending time on first up thing that I wanted to mention that I've, been starting to spend some time on and uh actually it's just over my shoulder here for simon's benefit sorry rest of you can't see this but uh been spending time on the yeti sb160 their updated version of their enduro race bike essentially and have been getting along with it super super well and i think the thing that stands out most about it at this point to me is that they've just done a notably good job of refining a lot of the little details and things that are often slight rough edges on a lot of other bikes just so it's it feels purposeful as a fairly game on but not totally over the top stable enduro bike to the point where it doesn't kind of work when you're going a little slower and a little bit tighter weirder spots and like in a way that feels pretty like a good middle ground for a an enduro race bike where you're riding fast rough trails generally speaking but also doing it kind of blind making mistakes riding some weirder tighter stuff and it's just a good middle ground of being pretty stable and composed but not such a sled that it feels totally cumbersome and out of place when you get into some weirder tighter spots and the bike that it's reminded me most of thus far is the pivot firebird which we were talking a bit off air before we started recording here actually and uh they're both sort of notable in that i guess for one thing just the sizing and fit of them is quite similar so um there's some commonality there but then also they're just both bikes that are like i was saying what i said about it being generally stable first and foremost but a little bit quicker handling and more nimble than most similarly stable bikes out there um and I would say that the Yeti is, if anything, a touch, quote unquote, more bike, a little more planted, a little bit less quick handling than the Firebird, but they're very much in the same kind of ballpark and more similar than they are different in that respect. 
the Firebird probably pedals a little bit more efficiently, but it's fairly close. I think the Yeti's got a little bit more traction and a little bit more small bump sensitivity, but the suspension still feels generally on the firmer, more supportive side of things, and it's definitely a bike that wants to be pushed relatively hard rather than being something that is super easygoing and happy being ridden slowly and lackadaisically. It it takes some input and some aggression for it to kind of start to come alive, but does really nicely once you start getting after it a bit. So just generally seems like a really nicely sorted out enduro race bike. And if that's what you're after, it's a good one. I mean, the, and it kind of had better be the pricing on them's a little wild there. It's a $5,000 frame set with the float X2, which is a bit much. But as I said, they've done a, a notably good job of just refining all of the little details. Like the cable riding is absolutely dialed and just the, all the pivot hardware is super well done and well thought out and everything just is nice and notably well refined. So I guess you're at least getting something for your $5,000 frame, but uh, they don't come cheap. No. Um, well, they never have, let's be honest about that. So, you know, they're, they're, they have been posting some some good results early on in the um, in the enduro series as well. So you you are you are getting uh, you know a race proven at this point still. Yeah, I mean, so it's been good getting along with well. Spend a lot more time on it in the coming months here, and we'll have a full review up in a bit. Our first look and flash review are live on the site, and then I guess to moving into a bike in a. Similar category, but with some extremely different design features and stuff going on. I've also been spending time on the Kodak Rocket Max, their 160 travel enduro bike, which in contrast to the Yeti in just about every respect, it's a steel frame made in the UK, linkage driven single pivot suspension. And um, talk to Kodak founder Cy Turner on the show a few episodes back. There's a link to that in the show notes if you want to hear a whole lot more about Kodak in general and some stuff about the Rocket Max in there more specifically too. But uh, thus far, my take on that one is that it is also a bike that I'm really enjoying, but it is a little bit sort of, it's more plush and planted and forgiving feeling than the Yeti. Doesn't have to be pushed as hard to start to come alive and feels just a little bit easier going and more of a an all-rounder big bike rather than something that is feeling like it is really expressly designed to be a race bike first and foremost um which for a lot of people i think is probably going to be a good thing it doesn't have to be going super hard for the suspension to kind of open up and that kind of thing like the small bump sensitivity when you're going slower and not hitting stuff super hard isn't particularly the Yeti's strong suit and the Kodak is quite a bit better on that front and that kind of thing. So similar bikes on paper in some ways, but feel pretty different in terms of how they actually ride and what they feel like they're trying to do. And getting on the Kodak has also been interesting in comparison to the Starling Murmur that I just reviewed, another UK made steel bike, because one of the things that uh, felt sort of most notable about the ride of the murmur is that it's just not a super stiff frame which i go into this in quite a bit of detail in the full review which is up on the site now and i think that that sort of 
ride quality and compliance serves the murmur really well in certain areas, particularly kind of composure and traction and weird off-camber routes and that kind of stuff. Like having a little bit of flex going on in the frame pays real dividends rather than being a downside. You know, we hear all this marketing about like new thing is 12% stiffer than before or whatever. And, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that I don't think stiffer is always better in every circumstance. But uh, the Rocket Max is quite a bit stiffer and feels sort of closer to a more quote unquote normal construction than the Murmur does, where despite both being steel frames, the Kodak just doesn't feel as notably compliant and different as the Murmur did compared to kind of the sort of median bike in that range as far as the overall ride feel of the frame goes. So been interesting to note that just categorizing the bike by frame material and assuming that you're going to know everything based on that is uh, very much not being borne out here. And uh, the two are very, very different despite, in fact, in fact, both being Reynolds 853 steel frames, they're super different, very different tube sets, very different designs. And the results are indeed super different. So that's been interesting. we got a first look and flash review of that up. Full review will come in a bit once I've got some more time on it. And um, I'm actually planning on handing that one off to our other reviewer, Zach Henderson, to get some time on too. So we'll have a couple of opinions on that bike and more to come. Simon, how about you? What have you been spending time on of late to touch on here? Right. Um, yeah, thanks, David. I've been spending a lot of time on the, uh, the Pivot Shuttle LT and also a specialized Turbo Levo comp. Um, both of these bikes now are similar sort of in focus and in what I would consider, you know, the, the big battery, full power sort of e-bike category. But going back to back on these bikes has been really interesting. So, um, for instance, you know, the Specialized is a mixed wheel size bike. And of course, the uh, the Pivot Shuttle LT is not. It's, it's 29. It's just like its Firebird uh, sibling, which it does have a lot in common with. And uh, interestingly, I do go back and forth. I ride the Specialized. I go, that's right, sold on mixed wheel size for e-bikes. You know, this has no drawbacks whatsoever. Whatever, you know, momentum that we are not seeing in, you know, having 29-inch wheels front and rear is completely offset by the fact that I have a motor. <laughs> then I go back and get on the pivot and then change my mind again. I was like, no, actually, the suspension is so good. Um, this thing is just effortly fast and just brilliant in every regard. I think 29 is the way to go. So I'm, I'm conflicted here, you know. Uh, I'm not going to say one is better than the other at this point, but they're both absolutely fantastic bikes. There's no doubt about it. Um, the full review on the pivot, this is the one I've been spending on uh, more time on just lately, is going to be coming up really soon. And sort of some some thoughts on that bike are, you know, as you've already brought up the Firebird, uh, when you're, um, I guess you, you've been comparing it to the, uh, the 160 from Yeti, uh, there is a lot in common with that bike. And just looking at the geometry charts, you can see those correlations with with one sort of distinction is that they've um, they've increased the stack height or uh, by quite a bit actually by twenty millimeters and which is which is a lot and I absolutely love this decision um, for for many reasons you know I think on an e bike it makes sense to have a higher stack height where 
you know, the, the benefits to having it lower in your, you know, slow speed, techie, you know, weird climb stuff. So you're not, you know, wandering front end or keeping some, um, keeping some pressure on that, uh, on that front wheel during cornering is 100% mitigated by the fact that A, you're going faster uphill because you were on an e-bike. So we don't have those same considerations. And then also in, in cornering, you've got the whole weight of that battery living in the uh, the down tube that's giving you, a, you know, some really nice uh, purchase on that weighting that front end. So I, I think this is a really good decision on their part. Um, surprisingly, we're not seeing it um, done very much, very uh, really anywhere else, I think, that I've been been looking. If you take... For instance, that this is based really closely on an existing mountain bike without a motor, then the really main thing they changed in the geometry department was increasing that stack height. Um, I think that was very clever and and well thought out on their part. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it, actually, because, you know, having that higher stack height downhill, I think, does offer more control. And here's the other thing. So, we are... You know, downhill, you are dealing with more mass. You do have that big battery living in that down tube, which I just mentioned. So getting that front end up um, requires more effort. However, a higher stack height makes that easier. So I'm finding it, it adds to a, making it more playful than just a smasher, which is which can really happen quickly on an e-bike, right? It's heavier. You, you can you can turn into a smasher and not try to ride smooth and and unweight that front end and and ride you know, um, dynamically, which um, you, I think, can do easier now with that higher stack height. So, thumbs up for that. Um, I go into that probably too much detail in that full review coming up soon. So, switching switching gears then to the Levo, uh, they, well, they didn't do that. They didn't, they, their, their numbers look very similar to, um, so, other analog bikes in their lineup. Specifically, which ones? Like, the comp... It's probably mostly the uh, Stump Jumper Evo, I guess. Yes, the Stump Jumper Evo, um, and that's you know the, the closest comparison to it. They do they do have a, a Kenevo, which then sort of lines up a little bit more with the Enduro. Um, so yeah, that and it does have you know, quite a bit of the same adjustability. Um, some might argue too much adjustability because we've got you know the headset adjustability and also the. Um, the chainstay length adjustability on that bike. So, uh, it yeah, it does it does so many things so well. Uh, I just do you ride. I was going to ask you that actually this a minute ago, but do you ride many Wix wheel size bikes in um, in Seattle area and in PNW? Yeah, I mean, I've reviewed a number. My personal bikes are not. I'm talking about this a lot on here. I sort of tend to not be the biggest fan of mixed wheel sizes in general. There have been a couple of bikes with it that have still worked really well for me, perhaps most notably the sixth generation Santa Cruz Nomad. But um, just the thing that I don't love, and I've said this here before, is that they tend to make a bike kind of given sort of similar overall numbers and everything else going on feel like it is a little bit quicker to turn in, especially from the rear end of the bike when you're sort of leaning it into a mid-speed corner is the thing where I often find them to feel the quirkiest and not work for me great in a way that you kind of have to stay a little more centered on the bike and do a little bit more counter steering with the bars to like catch the front end of the bike as it starts to turn in in a way that just doesn't 
mesh especially well with my preferences and writing style. And the flip side of that is that, you know, I can very readily imagine how someone who just has different preferences from me would find that quickness to be a really beneficial thing that makes the bike just feel sharper handling and more nimble sort of for a given level of overall stability that it also displays. And so I see it as uh, very much a kind of a personal preferences and how you go about riding and what you like as far as just cornering behavior and weight balance stuff. But uh, they're not my jam for the most part. Yeah. And I, I knew that. That's why I was like, I, I, I prodded you for that because um yeah, in, in the in the cornering department is 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 completely opposite to you. Is is, is where I absolutely adore a mixed wheel size bike, and especially the Levo, because and perhaps because I live in an area that has looser conditions typically and not as grippy soil. But the way that that back end likes to step out and the bike essentially oversteers is intoxicating. Absolutely love it, and I, and it happens on this Levo all the time because you definitely are carrying more speed, and where that weight is in its lower center of gravity. Um, the way that back end steps out is why I keep going back to, oh, yes, mixed wheel size is the way to go for an e-bike. There is no, you know, there's no penalty here. It's fantastic. So, um, yeah, there are two different ways of looking at this, isn't there? Yeah. And I mean, I think that just nicely illustrates sort of the point that we make all the time here at Blister, that there is no objective best anything and th- so much of what goes into figuring out what's going to just work best for a given person comes down to preferences and riding style and terrain and a million other factors. And so you pretty much can't ever say that like any one particular design decision, be it wheel size or a million other things is the way to go or the right answer. And because there is not a single right answer, depending who you are and what you like and how you ride and so on and so forth. Totally agree. Yeah, couldn't agree more, actually. And it, it does sort of um, circle back to, like, if it's possible to get on some of these bikes and ride them for yourselves. And, you know, like, we're, we're here as your resource um, to, to try and distill down these differences between these bikes and what we like and what we don't. But ultimately, it comes down to a lot of personal preference. Yeah, certainly the case. And um, I guess sort of the mantra that we use here a lot is it's good to know thyself and what you like but as you said too we're here to help and um have a whole lot of experience helping blister members out just figuring out what they do and don't like based on kind of having some conversations about what they've been riding what works for them and i think can do a pretty good job of nailing it down based on those kind of conversations but it does take that conversation because there's no one size fits all answer to any of these questions Exactly. And so if you were to try to summarize in just a few sentences or something pretty brief, kind of how the Levo and Shuttle LT stack up and sort of put them into some broad baskets of what sorts of riders are going to click with one more readily than the other and vice versa, how would you summarize that comparison? You know, I think it's they're both, like I said earlier, they, they fall into that big battery, full power e-bike. They're, you know, they're heavier as a result, but they also go further and have longer range. Um, and, and the range, you know, I think is 
well, I know I do know this actually has turned out to be very uh, very close for both of them, despite the, um, the different capacities of batteries. The the Lebo being a seven hundred watt hour battery, and the and the Pivot being seven fifty six. Um, but as I've been riding them on my same sort of test loop, they've been coming back with similar amounts of battery left. So I, I would say that their range, and I, I want to kind of put this out there. I think, and and because we're seeing this on you know on electric cars as well, that we can get really hyper focused on range. So let's just kind of be honest about something here. Like both of these bikes can go a really long way, and and most of the time further than the average rider is going to ride in a ride. <laughs> like on full power mode, um, we can get three and a half, close to four hours of ride time out of these, both of them. Um, which is a lot. And then if you turn that down to trail and eco mode, then that can get up towards a five hours and, and, and higher than that. So those are long, long bike rides. So I just want to make that point and, 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 and hope that people just sort of don't get too hyper-focused on range and those numbers because it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, I would say that the pivot, uh, going back to your initial question, is going to appeal uh, to that rider where suspension performance is paramount. Okay. Um, Fox 38 factory in the front and the one we have and just the way that the pivot's rear suspension works is so good. I love the float X in there. I think overall that suspension performance um, it is better than the Levo. Okay. Um, the Levo is it's as because Specialized does integrate and does design these things of systems in-house has a more integrated feel. I do like that about it. It's also less money and things are on sale. So it's considerably less money right now today. <laughs> so that really could play into it as well if you are a little bit more budget conscious. I mean, of course, they do have the S-Works versions and stuff that are still very expensive, but the Comp is a really good bike at that price point. And I would give it a little bit more of a playful personality with that mixed wheel size. Um, if that's your style of riding, that they can play very well into that. If you like a bike that steps out in the rear and, and um, it just it just tempts you to get a little goofier on the trail. And, and I think also with a rear wheel being a bit smaller, it does assist in getting into a manual. Um, I like it. I like it in that regard. It is It is really fun. So there's, you know, maybe the, the pivot's a little bit more business-like in how it goes about it's, um, you know, going downhill and things like that. But they're they're both very close in, in capability. Cool. Uh, seems like a good summary. And like you said, we'll have the full review of the Shuttle LT up quite soon after this podcast airs. And the Levo's a little farther out, but we'll have that one coming too. So looking forward to seeing your more full thoughts on those when the time comes. To move it into something a little bit different, I've also just been spending a bunch of time on the new Forge and Bond 30EM wheels. So uh, if you haven't heard of Forge and Bond, that's because brand new company just launched a couple days ago. Uh, we've got a first look up on the site that's got some information about the company and the wheels. But the short version is that it is a new brand from CSS Composites who have been making thermoplastic carbon fiber wheels for Revel, Evil, and Chris King for a while now, but are striking out with their own iteration of those now. Uh, and they're sort of talking about the 30 EMs and Forge and Bond is kind of doing the second generation of their development of thermoplastic wheels. And if you're not maybe familiar with what I'm talking about with thermoplastic carbon fiber as opposed to thermoset carbon fiber, 
it all kind of comes down to the resin or matrix around the carbon fibers themselves that are used to form them into a rigid part. Short version is that the overwhelming majority of carbon fiber parts are what is called thermoset composite, which is to say that they're using an epoxy to bond all of the carbon layers together and turn them into a rigid part, whereas thermoplastic parts use a meltable plastic in lieu of epoxy. So um, CSS and Forge and Bond say that, among other things, it makes for a more damped kind of smooth feeling ride with yeah just more damping out of the wheel than you can get out of a thermo set part and also that it's got a bunch of advantages in terms of being recyclable we talk about that a bunch more in the first look so check that out uh and doing things like using less energy to produce because the raw materials don't need to be refrigerated like you do with thermo set composites and so on and so forth. So um, at any rate, the wheels are kind of a 30 millimeter width, all mountain trail enduro kind of wheel, um, sort of middle of the road stuff design wise, as far as just sizing and specs and whatnot. Thus far, they're only available in 29 inch, though they said 27.5 ones are coming in a bit um, exact time frame to be determined. But uh, I'm pretty impressive far and i think that sort of the biggest most notable thing is that the claims of them feeling quite a bit more damped than most thermo set carbon wheels are definitely borne out on trail they just feel a little bit more muted and transmit a bit less feedback than most carbon wheels do in ways that i think are both good and maybe not as always desirable too. It's depending on your preferences again. So they're notably smooth feeling, especially on kind of smaller chatter and that kind of thing. The potential trade-off, depending on what you're into, is that they don't feel quite as kind of lively in terms of how they rebound from being flexed and that kind of thing. And you can sort of get some pop and energy out of some other wheels in a way that these don't quite do. And so, again depending on what you're looking for may or may not be the golden ticket, but um, particularly the bits about them being kind of notably smooth and damped feeling are seemingly real. They're definitely borne out in my experience on trail with them and I'm getting along with them pretty well. That does sound really interesting. You know, um, I you think you know this about me, but I am a huge fan of tire inserts, which also do a very similar thing to the ride feel like, how would you sort of how would you compare them to say a, a tire insert as far as the feel goes yeah it's it's different and actually in, interestingly forge and bond they don't exactly expressly forbid it but they do recommend not running tire inserts with these and going to a burlier casing if you need the pin flat protection and so on rather than trying to use inserts to get the job done i wonder if that's because it would make it just a too damp of a of a ride like what would be the the drawback to the rim protection you'd also get from an insert in there it's just curiosity here it's been on my list to sort of talk to them about that a little bit more i don't have a, a very clear answer on why exactly that is the recommendation that they're making but um, i'll get some more feedback and comment on it in the full review but back to your question 
I would say that there is some some commonality in the feel in that you do have just particularly more damping in terms of how the whole system rebounds from being compressed or flexed a bunch. And, but it's different because you're getting kind of much smaller scale deflections out of a wheel than you are from the tire when you're smashing it into stuff. And so I would say that a tire insert versus no insert feels like it makes a bigger difference on smaller scale chatter and like small roots and rocks and just smaller scale impacts in general. Whereas the differences between wheels and the more damped feeling of the forge and bond wheels in particular starts to feel more distinctly different at higher speeds and bigger impacts when you're hitting stuff harder. And so, which is not to say that tire inserts don't have a, an effect there as well, but there does feel like there's a bit of a difference in sort of the circumstances in which the differences are most pronounced. So yeah, different ways of accomplishing perhaps not entirely different things, but uh, they've been working well so far and um, wheels are made in their own facility in Utah as with all of the other CSS composites wheels. Um, so we'll have a full review of those coming up soon too, but I've uh, been getting along with them really well so far. Anything else that you've got for us, Simon, to kind of round this one out? Well, um, you know, I do have um, I do have a pair of shoes I'm really into. Um, Fox Union clipless shoe has become my new go-to shoe. Uh, absolutely love this shoe. It's fantastic in every regard. Um, it's light. It's sort of... It's replaced my uh, Giro Chamber, um, which is a very similar design. And um, I, I, I love what they've done here. This is their first uh, entry into the shoe market. And I got to say, they knocked it out of the park. I can't fault a single thing about it. it it's just, it's been great. And so I'm, when I'm going for a ride, these are the shoes I'm reaching for. Uh, it's got really good um, toe protection. It's um, It's got this molded in cap design. And I have tested it multiple times by smashing my toes into rocks and, you know, very rocky area. And it's been completely fantastic. No, no, um, no sore toes, I suppose. Right. But anyhow, I guess there'll be a, a, a full review on these coming up, I think, within the week here. Uh, I've got lots of miles in them so far and they're just getting better. Yeah, and you've been in the regular lace-up version of those. There's also a BOA version available, but you've been trying the... More basic ones, right? That's correct. Yep. I, I just thought we were, um, you know, we could have done either one of those, but like it just seemed like there's just a lot of boa out there and I wanted to go back to laces. And um, I feel like that's going to be the shoe most people are going to reach for or you know, look at in that price point as well. Sure. Any kind of general thoughts on overall fit and that kind of thing? I mean, you said you like them great, but um, how would you characterize the shaping and fit of them for people who are curious about that bit? I do have a very sort of low volume foot, which is problematic in ski boots. <laughs> um, and in this regard, it, it it doesn't, it's not a problem. There is tons of room in the, in the shoe box. It comes, actually, this is a really good feature of these. It comes with an insole that has two separate um, removable um, arch supports. So you can go for, you know, different heights of your arch support with the stock uh, footbed. That's pretty unique. 
super cool. I've tried them both ways. I, I go with the higher arch support version. Um, and, and to be clear, typically I do pull my, uh, my footbeds out of my bike shoes and put my ski boot orthotics in there. Um, cause I've got lots of those laying around and I do think that, you know, a custom footbed is still probably the way to go, but, um, in the stock form, these are excellent. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, I guess as someone who has a pretty low volume foot, as you've described, uh, the lace version has been doing a good job of cranking them down or would you say that this is a pretty low volume shoe in general or more just a shoe that is doing a good enough job of wrapping around your low volume foot but isn't necessarily yes it's the latter okay this is not a low volume this is no low volume shoe i think if anything it's roomy okay um yep and um it has done a, a really good job it might don't have any heel slip and the laces are perfect in that regard but there is a velcro strap in there also that is well designed so you get that additional cinching down from that cool um yeah glad to hear those are working out and um again full review of those coming very shortly so stay tuned for that and uh with that i think that might be about where we wrap this one up been good talking to you as always simon and looking forward to seeing you very shortly at sea otter we'll have a whole lot of coverage coming from that very shortly simon and i are both heading down so i guess as of the airing of this podcast that That'll be day one of Sea Otter, so a whole lot of stuff coming, both in terms of new bike releases and uh, just Simon and I reporting back on what we're seeing at the show. So uh, stay tuned on the site. We'll have a whole lot coming very shortly. And Simon, I'll see you real soon. Always a pleasure, David. Great chatting with you about bikes. You know, favorite subject. Cheers. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Simon for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back with you again next week. Bye, everybody.